The reality is that there are a number of different legal standards for changing gender markers on identity documents. There, you know, there might be one standard for a birth certificate change, and there could be another one for a driver's license change, and there could be another one for a passport policy. And so that unfortunately creates the opportunity for a spouse to challenge the validity of a marriage, for example, by now arguing that it's not a different sex marriage if somebody has inconsistent gender markers. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today. Uh, Craig, of course, writes a blog called May It Please the Court, and I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law. And uh, before we get going with today's program, we'd, of course, like to thank uh, our sponsors, Clio, the web-based practice management uh, solution available at goclio.com, and also PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial of PC Law, go to pclaw.com slash radio. Protecting parental rights and custody disputes involving transgender children and protections for transgender youth, these are just some of the legal issues involving the transgender community making their way through family courts every day. Uh, But is there a bias that exists towards the transgender community within the courts uh, or even within law practice. Uh, We have two guests on the program today who've just co-edited a new book. uh, I believe it's on sale now uh, called Transgender Family Law, A Guide to Effective Advocacy. We're going to be talking about the book and we're going to be talking about some of the legal issues uh, that that are addressed in the book and practical issues as well with our guests. So let me uh, bring them on to the show now. First of all, I'd like to introduce uh, Jennifer L. Levi. Uh, Jennifer is the director of the Transgender Rights Project for the Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders Organization based out of Boston. And Jennifer is a uh, a nationally recognized expert on transgender legal issues. Uh, She is co-editor of this book, uh, Transgender Family Law Guide to Effective Advocacy, the first book to address uh, legal issues facing transgender people in the family law context and providing practitioners the tools to effectively represent transgender clients. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your focusing on this important topic. Well, we're glad you could be with us to talk about it. And also joining us today is Elizabeth E. Monin browder a litigation associate in the Boston office of the law firm Ropes and Gray. Uh, Liz is a former GLAD attorney. She's also co-editor of the book uh, we've been discussing, Transgender Family Law. So, uh, Liz, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Well, thanks. And uh, uh, let's just start off, I guess, uh, Liz, let me just ask you, uh, I mean, does the law uh, recognize, is there a legal definition of, of transgender within the meaning of the law? There 
is not one legal definition, but the generally understood definition of transgender is that it refers to people who have a gender identity or a gender expression that's inconsistent with or in some way doesn't conform to the stereotypical expectations that go along with the sex that they were assigned at birth. So that's kind of the definition that um, is pretty generally understood and commonly used. The two of you have have co-edited this book, and several other authors have contributed to it. And uh, I think uh, if you go to, uh, just for our listeners' benefit, they can find uh, information about the book at www.glad.org slash transgender hyphen family hyphen law. And the book, as I say, is on sale uh, at uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and other other places. And I see from your website, they're actually having a launch event tomorrow. So our timing is good for doing this program. But uh, tell us, uh, Liz, perhaps we could bring you into the conversation. You can tell us a little bit about why you saw the need for this book. Sure. Um, you know, transgender people are members of our families. They're parents and children and siblings. And in the family law context, there, there has been a good deal of bias and misinformation about transgender people. And the result of this is that there have been some really bad cases in which transgender people's families and their rights as members of families, their rights as parents or their rights as married people have been undermined and nullified for no other reason than that they are transgender. And so, you know, we needed a resource like this for trans for transgender people and for their family law attorneys to help them protect their families, to make sure that um, that they aren't either negotiating away their rights because of fear of what would happen if they went to court, or if they are in court for a family law dispute that. They are their families and their relationships are treated with the respect and dignity that they deserve. What are some of the, looking at the, I have not had an opportunity to actually see the book itself, but uh, looking uh, at, at the website where you've got a lot of information about the book, uh, you've got uh, a number of uh, sort of s- stories about uh, some people. I don't know if these are people who are involved, uh, profiled in the book, but uh, it, it was intriguing to me that one of the, uh, that you you open this book with a discussion of some of the issues that practitioners should be aware of in uh, handling cases uh, uh, involving transgender clients. Jennifer, perhaps you could speak a little bit to what is perhaps uh, you know unique uh, in terms of uh, practicing law and and uh, representing transgender clients. What are some of the special considerations that that should, lawyers should be aware of? Sure. I mean, certainly one of the things that is true is that there are a number of family law attorneys who are interested in um, representing transgender people but don't have experience and don't necessarily know how to create a welcoming climate even within their own um, practices. And so, you know, as Liz said, being transgender means that a person lives in a gender that is not the same one that they were assigned at birth. And so that means that somebody representing a client needs to figure out the best way to respect that person in their individual practice. So just, you know, some of the most basic things include, for example, reviewing your intake forms. And if, um, you know, a form asks for someone to simply put a check in um, a box for sex, male or female, that might not 
work for all potential transgender individuals who you'd want to bring into your practice. And so, you know, recrafting intake forms to have uh, fill-in-the-blank kinds of information rather than check boxes might off- often be more helpful. Uh, people might have more complicated answers to give to questions about, say, relationship status than simply married, divorced, or single. And again, having a line that you can fill in or including more variations on relationship status would create a more welcoming climate for transgender individuals. And, you know, there's a lot of other tips that are included in there, including really a checklist for family law practitioners. Uh, you, you said something there that, that intrigued me, uh, because you, you mentioned this idea of uh, transgender individuals being somebody who is uh, perhaps uh, doesn't identify with, with the gender they were physically assigned at birth, I guess, uh, might be the way to say it. But one of the case studies that you had on, on your uh, website, again, I don't know if this is in the book at all, but uh, talked about an individual who uh, did not, uh, I guess, identify, and I'm forgetting now whether it was a, a man or a woman, who did not identify with his agenda, the gender, this sort of physical gender, but who, uh, I, I don't think there had been a, a gender reassignment procedure of any kind uh, in the case. And it was a divorce case, I think you we were talking about, and the question of, what are the rights? Uh, I think it was that uh, the wife, uh, the spouse challenged uh, the legitimacy of the divorce or the ability to seek a divorce based on uh, the fact that uh, perhaps the marriage hadn't been legal in the first place. Um, so I guess my, my question is, uh, uh, is there always a, a, a medical procedure involved in uh, in uh, identifying a transgender client or can it be simply a matter of gender identification uh, you know, in the client's sort of uh, how they view themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, and I don't want to, to overly mystify this either. But the reality is that um, there is not one single standard for determining what a person's sex is. And that's true for transgender and non-transgender people. It's just that for non-transgender people, the question doesn't typically arise in a person's life about, you know, what is your sex because it's assigned at birth and it's never questioned later on. Um, But for a transgender person who does undergo gender transition, and I can talk about, you know, what constitutes gender transition, the reality is that there are a number of different legal standards for changing gender markers on identity documents. There, you know, there might be one standard for a birth certificate change, and there could be another one for a driver's license change, and there could be another one for a passport policy. And so that unfortunately creates the opportunity for a spouse to challenge the validity of a marriage, for example, by now arguing that it's not a different sex marriage if somebody has inconsistent gender markers. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book is both how to get um, documentation that substantiates the fact of a person's gender transition and also what to do if it turns out that you have inconsistent documentation uh, to substantiate it. And I guess just to also follow follow up on the other question you asked, which is, you know, what constitutes gender transition? And the reality is, of course, that people have different lived experiences, which is somebody may live in a gender that's inconsistent from their birth sex. Um, But from a medical perspective, there is an established protocol for undergoing gender transition, and that includes um, the possibility of either living full-time in the, um, the the gender that's consistent with the person's internalized sense of who they are as male or female. It could also include cross-gender hormone therapy, and it could also inc- include a range of different surgeries. 
And the consensus position within the medical community is that any combination, um, any one or more of those steps is uh, what's appropriate depending on the person's individual circumstances. So in the family law context, uh, what are some of the key issues? Liz, let me ask you, what are, what are some of the key issues that uh, you address in the book that come up in, uh, with respect to transgender clients? Yeah, so each chapter of our book kind of looks at a different family law issue. So we wanted it to be as user-friendly as possible for transgender people and their attorneys. So someone could read just the chapter that maybe applies to their circumstances. And some of the issues that we look at are, for example, in the instance of a transgender child, and perhaps the two parents do not see eye-to-eye on the best treatment for that child, um, what's appropriate for that child, and perhaps those parents are themselves estranged or getting a divorce or are divorced. Well, in an instance like that, you know, what are the ways in which a court might look at the best interest of the child standard and see and make a determination about um, which parent is really acting in the child's best interest and make decisions about custody. Um, so we have a chapter on, on that kind of deals with issues surrounding if there's a transgender child. Um, we have other um, chapters that look at transgender people and their relationships with a spouse or a life partner. So um, there's a chapter about the validity of transgender people's marriages post-transition and then another chapter that looks at divorce. Um, we also have a chapter that looks at estate planning for transgender folks and you know what might be some special considerations to make sure that a transgender people person's intentions are respected um, after they die. So we really, we honestly, we tried to cover a lot of different things in this book. We have a tr- chapter, another chapter that looks at issues specific to transgender youth, um, a domestic violence chapter. So there really is a lot. We try to be very comprehensive in what we were including that relates to family law issues. And how much do we have in the way of, of precedent or guidance from the courts or even legislatures on some of these issues? I assume this is uh, an, an evolving and still relatively new, uh, uh, not area of law, but but issue of law, I guess, for, for many courts. Uh, so how much guidance do we have? You know, take, take, take some of these marriage issues, for example. Uh, is there much precedent? Yeah, I could speak to that. I mean, there, there is a fair bit of precedent really from the last 40 years because, um, you know, transgender people have existed throughout time and it's not that there is, I mean, there's not a, there's not a ton of it for sure. Um, but you know, one of the issues that makes it challenging of course, is that family law is decided on a state by state assessment and oftentimes, um, evaluating facts in individual cases. So there is precedent, um, not a huge amount of it. And, you know, we've certainly seen a trend in which courts have increasingly focused, for example, on what a person's sex is uh, because of the backlash that we've seen around the marriage equality issue for same-sex couples. And so one of the things that the book really tries to do is pull all of those cases together in one place so that a practitioner can easily find the material that they would need for any particular case. These are, uh, I, I guess, I, I somewhere recently seen a, a case. I think it was a, actually an EEOC case that, that talked about uh, recognizing uh, discrimination uh, against transgender people as a as a form of uh, unlawful 
discrimination under federal employment law. Uh, and, uh, the, the, you know, the issues here, it seems to me, are probably uh, more complex than questions of, of whether or not something is, is discrimination, which is uh, sort of a, either it's a protected category or it's not. Here it seems like a, some of the issues that you would deal with are, are evolving uh, issues or, or uh, transitional issues in a sense, where uh, if you talk about a, a transgender child, for example, perhaps it's a child who's uh, in a in a situation of trying to understand uh, where he or she stands and and what's what uh, what the potential issues are. Same in a marriage, I suppose. These are you know you talk about uh, pre-transition marriages, post-transition marriages. Uh, th- these are evolving situations in many cases uh, that involve many years of. Uh, I would assume many years of uh, changes for some people. So, uh, what, how does that uh, affect? Uh, you know, how, how do how do lawyers and, and courts grapple with those kinds of situations? The fact that this is not something that's either it's it's not one way or the other. It's something that's sometimes uh, transitional. Yeah, you know, I want to speak to that because I mean, one of the reasons why I think there's so much potential bias in the family law context is because we have these standards like best interest of the child or equity for distribution of property in a divorce case in which judges can bring their own personal bias or lack of understanding in assessing a situation. And that's one of the things that the book is trying to address is to say, that if you understand more deeply and more seriously the experience of transgender people, then you wouldn't, um, you know, punish somebody, for example, for uh, for transitioning. And let me give you an example. One of the cases that um, is, I don't know, very very typical is that you've got a couple involved in a legally heterosexual marriage. Um, you know seen to the entire world as husband and wife. And then the person who's seen as the husband realizes at some point later in life that uh, that individual identifies as female and is going to undergo gender transition as a life-saving measure for that person. So the person comes out as transgender, and uh, while many of those marriages survive, certainly many of them fail as well, and you have the wife coming to court saying, I should receive all of the property or I should receive a very large rehabilitative alimony award because I shouldn't have to suffer the experience of having a transgender spouse. And where courts have absolutely no connection to that information, we see judges just putting themselves in the shoes of that spouse and oftentimes punishing the transgender spouse. And what we also know is that if we can provide background and information on the experience of being transgender, then what would have previously been viewed as, you know, an untenable experience is just viewed as being within the range of experiences that people have where a marriage breaks up and nobody should be punished. Well, that that raises a lot of practical questions. I mean, if uh, in the example that you raise, at what point, what point do they call in the lawyers? I mean, if, if that husband uh, uh, feels, anticipates that he's going to be transitioning, uh, when does he call a lawyer? That's a great question. Oh, Jennifer, do you want to continue? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Liz. Well, yeah, go let's ahead, go ahead. Let me, let's get yeah. you in this conversation. No, I was just going to say that is, that's another part of the practice piece that we tried to bring out in the book is that the reality is that transgender people need to be proactive in thinking about how they protect their families and about 
anticipating that their transgender identity may be raised and thinking about what is the best way to deal with that, either defensively or offensively, um, and how to share that information, particularly if there are children involved. Um, and and it, it, there, is, there are these questions about how to um, seek out and use legal counsel as a way to ensure a good outcome. And, and so part of that is then also having counsel that is educated about the issues and, and is able to think through what might need to be, um, what information might need to be shared with the court and ways to share that information. So using expert witnesses or using um, affidavits from medical professionals, things like that. Okay. Uh, we need to take a short break. Uh, stay with us. We're going to have much more on transgender family law and uh, the new book on the topic when we return to Lawyer to Lawyer after this break. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter. LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are discussing transgender family law with Jennifer L. Levi, the director of Transgender Rights Project for Gay and Lesbian uh, Advocates and Defenders, and Elizabeth E. Moon Browder, a litigation associate at the Boston Office of Ropes and Gray and a former GLAD attorney. 
Both are uh, co-editors of the brand new book, Transgender Family Law, A Guide to Effective Advocacy. Uh, one of the, uh, we, we've been talking a, a little bit about some of the issues in, in, in marriage. Uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about uh, parental rights. I, I know this is another chapter in your book, but uh, uh, how does, uh, how do uh, transgender issues uh, in a in the breakup of a relationship play into the question of parental rights? How are courts uh, dealing with that? Uh, Liz or Jennifer, uh, I'm not sure who wants to take that. Sure. I mean, I can start and maybe Liz can follow on, but I mean, this is an area where we've seen some really devastating outcomes where transgender parents haven't taken steps to protect their relationships with their children. So there was a case in Illinois, for example, where a transgender man who had you know, parented a child with his spouse, um, underwent a divorce, and the wife to that relationship said that the marriage was never valid. And that since the marriage was never valid, and is as she framed the argument, he was not a lawful parent because he didn't have either a biological or an adoptive relationship to that child. And the court in that case agreed with the analysis, and it was a, just a heart-wrenching outcome um, because it meant that this child could not have a sustained relationship with the only other person she had ever known in her life as a parent. And so there are steps that someone could take to ensure that that can't happen. Um, doing an adoption, for example, where that's available uh, would be one option. And also there are recommendations around having the non-transgender spouse acknowledge the fact of the spouse being transgender, recognizing that so that she can't then turn around at some later point in time and say that she was deceived or um, uh, given misinformation about her spouse's life. All right. Liz, anything you want to add to that? No, I mean, that that we have a chapter that looks at, you know, protecting transgender, transgender parents' rights and their relationships with their children. And then we also have another chapter that looks at protecting transgender children and making sure that they are receiving um, the support and love and care that they need from a supportive parent. So we kind of look at both of those possible sets of circumstances. What, what about with transgender children? Um, if, if transgender children are identifying as such, uh, are they? What are some of the issues they face? I mean, there's been a lot of talk lately about you know bullying is all the news, uh, even uh, up to a presidential candidate perhaps being involved in it. Um, are transgender youth more susceptible to bullying, to other forms of discrimination? What are some of the issues that they face? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's you know very little information or understanding about transgender youth. Um, and certainly bullying and hostile treatment in different environments is one of the issues. But there are also some really, you know, basic issues about, for example, how parents can get a name change for um, a transgender young person or how parents can access medical care and support for that young person. Um, there are issues that youth face, certainly when they're not in an intact family, when they come up upon um, misunderstanding in the uh, state systems to support out-of-home youth and foster care and in juvenile justice. Um, I mean, I can speak a little bit. There was a case that I was involved with in uh, early 2000s, 2001, representing a transgender 11-year-old who had tremendous support from her family and her 
you know, the people that were responsible for her daily care, but she faced hostile administrators at a school. And again, being able to provide just some basic clarifying information about both the experience and the recommendation for support and care of these youth really, you know, helped to to improve the experience for this young person. But ultimately, we did have to go to court and um, sue the school, which was prohibiting the student from wearing, this was a uh, someone who was assigned the sex of male at birth, but lived as a girl, and the school said that you know she couldn't come to school wearing girls' clothing, which effectively meant she couldn't get an education. And the court addressed that issue. And how did it address? How did it turn out? Uh, it turned out that the uh, Massachusetts court said that the school had to um, treat her as they would any other girl in school, and so that if she was wearing clothing that was consistent with what other girls in the school would be allowed to wear, then she had to be allowed to go to school and couldn't be, um, you know, singled out by the principal every day for, and then get sent home, which is what had been happening. How how did judges uh, treat these issues? Are judges equipped to address transgender issues? Is it up to the, is it the role of the lawyer to educate judges about these issues? Uh, what have you seen from your experience? I know, you, I know, uh, Jennifer, you've done you mentioned that case. You've done this. You've been involved in a number of cases uh, involving transgender issues. How? How? What kind of reaction are you getting? Reception are you getting from judges? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it really is um, essential that a lawyer representing a transgender individual bring information to the court to explain this experience. So, for example, we know that a person's gender is established very early in life and that it's not subject to change and that certainly you know young people have the experience who identify in a different way than their assigned birth sex of kind of shutting out those feelings and not being able to come to an understanding of what their gender identity is until later in life but that once that happens we can't change people um, you can't make a transgender person be not transgender, much like you can't make a gay person be straight. And so it's very helpful to provide that kind of information to courts who can then understand the experience in a different way. But, you know, without bringing that information to judges, there's no reason to imagine that the judge would necessarily know that because oftentimes all judges have, like anyone else has, is kind of the common misperceptions that we have or very outdated views on who transgender people are from, you know, stories and, um, you know, sometimes I guess from, from TV shows, but more from mythology, it seems like. And so, yeah, from having experts and affidavits and uh, social science data and research can really be essential to positive outcomes in these cases. I know that the book is uh, targeted at advocates uh, in this area. Um, but uh, Liz, I wonder if I could just ask you real quickly, because uh, we're getting near the end of our time, but when, when uh, uh, transgender individuals are looking for legal help. Uh, how do they go about finding a lawyer who is uh, both competent uh, to uh, uh, handle their cases and, and uh, sensitive to some of the unique issues in their cases? That's a great question. I think transgender people do need to interview their attorneys because I think there are um, great, well-meaning attorneys out there who and so it's just about finding someone, and then it is probably about finding someone who, if they have experience already representing gay and lesbian clients, but not necessarily transgender clients, that that attorney is also willing to educate themselves and maybe connect with resources and other colleagues with that expertise. Um, because it's important for an attorney representing a transgender client to 
um, both get a good outcome for that client, but also to think about how the outcome might affect case law in the area and setting precedent for other transgender people. Um, so that's one of the reasons we're excited to now have a, a resource that a transgender person can go to with their, go bring to their attorney and say, you know, this is something I think might be useful to you. Um, and as well as that, you know, here are some phone numbers. You could call GLAD if you have a question, for example. So I think, you know, a transgender person needs to interview their attorney and, and make sure they have some familiarity and that they're going to be comfortable working with that person. But then I think they probably are going to need to take it upon themselves to share some resources as well. Okay. Uh, we are, uh, we're just about at the end of our time here. And I do want to give uh, each of you an opportunity to have your, share your your final thoughts uh, with us. Uh, we could we could talk uh, a lot more about this, uh, and I wish we could, but uh, we're out of time. But uh, I, I'd love to hear your your final thoughts. And also, uh, I, I've I've mentioned uh, the URL for your book, and I'll mention that again at the closing uh, of the show. But if there's uh, any other way you would like to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you, uh, you you can uh, invite you to do that uh, as well. So uh, Jennifer, let me start with you. Sure. Um, you know, I think that. As we see greater visibility around transgender people's lives, it is important to understand that transgender people are part of everyone's families. Transgender people are parents and children and brothers and sisters and neighbors and relatives. And so that is go that increasing visibility, I think, is going to present more opportunities for courts and judges and for the legal system to decide how best to ensure that um, everybody is protected as families get created and dissolved. And so... Um, you know, I hope that transgender family law will be a helpful resource to attorneys, but I also urge transgender people who are creating, expanding, and dissolving families to get a copy of the book and get educated themselves and ensure that their legal rights and those of the people that they love are protected. So I appreciate your covering the topic. Okay. And if our, if our listeners want to follow up with you uh, in any way, uh, how would they do that? Great. So yeah, www.gladglad.org is uh, a great way to certainly find out some more information and to reach out to me. And the other thing is uh, GLAD also has a legal information line that is staffed five days a week and is reachable at 1-800-455-GLAD. That's 1-800-455-4523. And there's a tremendous amount of helpful legal information that anyone can get, including um, attorney referrals in the New England area. Uh, well, Liz, uh, <laughs> how about you? Your your final thoughts on this? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, family law deals with some of the most intimate and important relationships in each of our lives. Um, and transgender people, as Jennifer said, are part of families. So I think, you know, I just ask that our your listeners help us spread the word to transgender people that they know and also to family law and estate planning attorneys that they know because this is a great resource and it will only be useful if people know about it and are able to access it. So please help spread the word. And yes, thank you so much for doing um, a show on this topic. Well, uh, thanks again. Uh, our, the book again is Transgender Family Law, A Guide to Effective Advocacy, edited by Jennifer L. Levi and Elizabeth E. Monin Browder. Uh, you can find it on the uh, GLAD website at uh, www.glad.org slash transgender hyphen family hyphen law. It's also on Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com and other sites uh, for a ridiculously cheap price. I'm just noticing uh, it, it's uh, under $20 uh, list price, a very affordable book. So I urge our listeners to uh, check it out. Well, thank you to 
both of you for taking the time to be with us today and to, to share your uh, book and to share some of your insights in this area. Uh, reminder to our listeners that you can now get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcast. Go to legaltalknetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center icon that you see there. And you can find all of our shows in the podcast library at iTunes. And you could even now download our brand new Android app where you can uh, access all the Legal Talk Network shows on your phone or tablet device. And we'll, uh, we'll have that iPhone app out there soon. So thanks again to our guests and thanks again to our listeners. And we will be back next week with a, another great legal topic. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.